This is Hacker Public Radio, episode 3689 for Thursday, the 22nd of September 2022. Today's show is entitled Linux and Laws, Season 1, Episode 65, Terminus DB. It is hosted by Monochromic and is about 68 minutes long. It carries an explicit flag. The summary is Terminus DB NoSQL Database. Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Due to the use of a closed-source operating system from the northwest of the US of A on the Terminus DB side, audio quality suffered a bit and may not meet the expectations of our listenership with regards to the usual audio quality of the podcast. We apologize for any inconvenience caused. On the flip side, we are happy to report that no animals were harmed or used for testing during the production of this episode, at least as far as we know. Welcome to Linux In-Laws Season 1 episode I can't even remember. Unfortunately, Martin is not here tonight because he's feeling a little bit under the weather, but I'm more than happy to host this alone for a change, and I'm more than happy to introduce our guests for tonight. It's a project called TerminusDB, and with me are Gavin Mendelssohn and Luke Feeney. But without further ado, guys, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Gavin Mendel-Gleason, and I'm a CTO for Terminus TV uh, and one of the co-founders. Uh, so my background was in maths and physics, uh, and then I went into computer science, got a doctorate in computer science, and then I was working on a project at Trinity College Dublin on long-range historical research, and we needed a database, and strangely, we decided to actually write one. So that's, that's sort of the origin of Terminus TV uh, and a bit about my background. Luke, over to you. Uh, so, hi. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, I'm Luke. I'm Luke Feeney. Uh, I am also one of the co-founders of Terminus DB. Uh, I joined the gang after the um, technology and the company spun out of Trinity College in, in Dublin. Uh, my background is not in technology, but rather uh, in diplomacy, so I work more on the uh, relationship side of the organization, though I now um, provide some input into the tech side as, as much as I can, at least, to give some direction there. Now, funny, fun fact, Trinity College, <laughs> uh, full disclosure people, 
it's the place where I did a PhD about 25 years ago. Uh, apparently, Luke, neither Luke nor, nor Gavin were around at the time. <laughs> but it, 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 it's still the happening place that it used to be. I mean, I did the PhD in the very research group where Iona was a spin-off from or by or whatever, whatever you want to call it. And you're looking at kind of early 90s. And I reckon the rest is history. So maybe before we go into the depth of the project, maybe you can shed some light on actually how you met and how you found Determinus to be being a spin-off project of a research project uh, or being a spin-off of a research project at Trinity College. Because needless to say, TCD or Trinity College, as it's also known, is still close to my heart because, as I said, I did a PhD there ages ago. So why don't you give it a whirl? So, uh, yeah, so when I was at Trinity College Dublin, um, I was invited there, actually, by uh, Kevin Feeney, who's Luke, Luke Feeney's brother. Ah. And, and Kevin Feeney uh, suggested that I work with him on a project that he was putting together, a European project, um, in which he was trying to involve long-scale historical research, some industry partners, and others that were interested in, in basically in big data management projects. Okay. And this and when is we, when yeah. we sp spun out, uh, we needed somebody who was more on the commercial side, and so then, we, as soon as we spun out, essentially we went and and we, uh, we we approached Luke to see if he would be keen on doing it. Now, Luke, that must have been quite a transition, uh, coming from the diplomatic side to a software company, or startup for that matter. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge transition. You feel like you're. You know, when you get off a ship after going on a long ferry, uh, you feel like the ground is still moving around underneath you. Okay. Uh, it, it feels a little bit like that insofar as there's just so much uh, information to take on board and so much the secret language of technology that needs to be uh, ingested before you can uh, even sound credible. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely a, a big shift, but it's been very exciting, very interesting. It's great to... Do something very different so that you're, uh, you know, so, you know, you're fresh. The world from an entirely different angle. You get to meet new challenges, meet new challenges in a different way. Um, one of the nice things about working in a diplomatic service is that um, there's always something new to do. You know, you go off on a, an overseas posting to an embassy, and it's quite different from working in different bits of government. Um, and that's definitely the same with startups. You know, you have to kind of hit the do a million different things at the at the same. Okay. Now, when I hear diplomatic services, for some reason, and maybe I've just read too many spy novels, <laughs> the the intelligence angle rings a bell. But I reckon you were nowhere near that sort of focal point, being a diplomatic, being in the diplomatic services. Of course, you can't speak about it, fair enough. But <laughs> yeah, but Ireland is, is somewhat unique insofar as we have no intelligence service. This is the official yeah. version, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we have the police and we have the special branch of the police who do um, intelligence for policing. We don't have a specific agency that's an offshoot of the military um, or or an independent agency like the CIA or or MI6 or anything like that. in Ireland, there has been some suggestion through the years that we found such an agency. 
Nothing has ever come of that. Um, so uh, uniquely in Ireland, at least I can say that I can be 100% sure that I was not involved, unless I was recruited by a foreign uh, intelligence agency. And that happen, I can assure you that. <laughs> So MI MI six, if you're listening, the these rumors <laughs> of a, of an Irish intelligence service are just that rumors. No no truth behind this. Moving moving just off to much safer grounds. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the project itself, basically why you decided to spin this up into a commercial company, and then also talk a little bit about about the history of Terminus um after you spun it off from TCD. Yeah, so I guess in the early period, we were evaluating um, different storage possibilities for a collaborative knowledge graph. So essentially, we knew we wanted something that was extremely rich in terms of schema uh, that it could store. So our problems that we were looking at, for instance, were looking at human polities uh, throughout human history And we're trying to figure out, you know, what you have to be able to say things about them that are both geographically and time scoped. Uh, so you might say, what is the population of Rome? Uh, and that population exists within some kind of range of error bounds. And then the, the period over which you think it's about that also exists over some kinds of uh, ranges that also have error bounds temporally. And then you, you'll have lots of these sorts of uh, data points. These data points are quite rich themselves. They're not just like a number. It's like a lot of information is, is bundled up into what they call a variable in, in Seshat. So Seshat was the global historical data bank that was trying to build these big, uh, complex historical uh, databases or uh, knowledge graphs. Um, and it, it extended far beyond just uh, population. So it's also talking about the likely carrying capacity. It's talking about like um, what kinds of rituals they practiced, whether or not they had human sacrifice, uh, whether or not they had a doctrinal religion, um, the number of levels of hierarchy in the state, all kinds of things like this, uh, various social complexity variables. That, okay. That meant, yeah. yeah. So that meant very complex, rich databases that had to be managed over time. That would change. The ontologies would change. Researchers would discuss the problems, and we had to somehow be able to allow curation by a large international group of people uh, in in some kind of coherent way. So, so it was a hard a hard sort of data management problem that is actually pretty similar to a lot of things that exist in industry. Okay, before we move on, maybe there are two or three people in the audience who do not know what an ontology is and how that sort of database that you are just describing as a semantical, semantically based graph database connects to the ontology aspect. Maybe you can shed a little bit, a little bit on, on light on that um, for the slightly non-technical people in the audience. Yeah, no, that's a very good... Uh, I mean, it's actually kind of a complicated philosophical problem. So ontology is we, trying to find we, we out do the categories. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, we do have about four hours, so max, max yourself <laughs> out. Okay, yeah. So uh, ontology is really just the, the logic of the meanings of things and how to categorize them and how they relate to each other. So semantic meaning and the, the sort of structure that you want to put on knowledge. So it's not really a schema per se, but you can imagine creating a data model from 
an ontology or having a data model that is supposed to in some way reflect uh, the ontological structure of something. So essentially what you're implying, of course, Terminus being a NoSQL database, as in a, a, a somewhat unstructured database, meaning, if I, if I understand this correctly, essentially you have an unstructured knowledge base that you're pouring into a NoSQL schema, for want of a better explanation. Yeah, so I mean that's not too far from from the reality. So you have something that describes the sorts of things that we want, and we, but we wanted like much more, like much richer control over what was going into the database to make sure that, for instance, when people were putting in the population of Rome, they weren't putting in something random. So one of the problems we had initially, we were trying to source information from public sources, and one of those sources we used was uh, DBpedia. And the DBpedia had, um, for instance, we wanted to import battles and wars uh, into Sashat from the information in DBpedia. So DBpedia is a data uh, bank that was developed from the info boxes in Wikipedia. So it's got a lot of information, a lot okay. of very useful information. However, uh, you know, there's there's not that much in the way of quality controls on some of these things. One interesting problem that we ran into we we imported all of these wars and we were searching through and like there was one about um all of these birds there was all these connections to birds and we were like why are there birds in our database all of a sudden it, it turned out that uh, there was an ornithology war of 1865 or something like that which is you know a completely not a war in any sense but somehow had been imported into the uh, war sec section of okay. the ontology so that, that kind of looseness is, is quite dangerous. And if you're trying to build a, a knowledge graph, you need to have, if you want to use it for analysis, for scientific analysis, you have to have a lot of quality control over what's going in. So a lot of what we were developing in the early stage was really data quality assurance uh, technologies, trying to keep things um, so that they met a, a schema structure that was guided by an ontology. Okay, this bird thing is really interesting. Did you by chance also tackle coke wars, as in between Mexico and Colombia, for that matter? <laughs> no, we didn't get those ones in. But that was <laughs> I'm just asking that. So, okay, <laughs> it was probably only because we didn't search those dates. I mean, I was I was importing for earlier. So, <laughs> so where did you, where actually you, you said that you scrape that you scrape Wikipedia, but also DBpedia. DBpedia is a scrape. Uh, um, ah, okay, it, got it, it. It is a scrape from the info boxes in Wikipedia, uh, and they take that data and then they also do some curation on that data to try to improve its okay. quality. And when I take a look at the Wikipedia page, funny that of the CSHAT project, it says that the global history database gathers data into a single large database that can be used for to test scientific hypotheses. Now, that's a very interesting approach, isn't it? So essentially, you use historical data to confirm or reject scientific hypotheses beyond history or, as in general speaking, or just historical hypotheses. Uh, well, I mean, it, it could... I mean, some of the implications are present uh, today, right? But it is meant to test uh, past hypotheses. It has also been used to predict um, future events. So, for instance, um, some of the information that was used, one of the, one of the hypotheses is uh, 
was um, used to try to predict the uh, sort of Trump uh, era instabilities 10 years prior. So essentially, there's a bunch of social uh, social variables that predict that there's going to be a likely crisis in the United States due to various different convergent um, mm-hmm. elements. But that you was supposed to happen yeah. around 2022. So, an interesting year to come. <laughs> uh, what about the Klingon Romulan War? Does that feature on your map? <laughs> well, I mean, if we put it in, then we, we should be able to <laughs> just see curious, whether that's or not all. it's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Um. Very interesting background. Uh, so the idea was actually to monetize this in terms of spinning it out of this project. And I reckon that TCD was part of Seshat, as in the project itself. So we were part of the Seshat project, but uh, Trinity itself wasn't a, a partner. Ah, okay. So it was, yeah. It was mo- like some people from Oxford, Peter Turchin, who uh, was sort of leading the, the thing, but uh, Harvey Whitehouse and uh, uh, Thomas Curie. Okay. And- Going back to the to the spin-off, what exactly drove you to the conclusion that there might be a commercial market for this? As in, why, not, why did you take this concept from a from a research angle and put it into a startup? So we were also in this. Um, so the Seshat project uh, was part of a larger European project on data management, and one of the other partners in there was Walters Kluwer. And Walters Kluwer is a big uh, Dutch German okay. um, uh, mafia data, uh, data <laughs> firm. Sorry. <laughs> and and they were interested in the technology, and so we, okay. we had a project with them, and that's that's sort of okay. what. Uh, the genesis of the spin-out was. Wow. And if I'm asked, why the name Terminus? Or Terminus DB, for the matter. So, uh, it's Terminus DB because... um, So, Terminus was the place in which there was a repository of all of the important human knowledge in the Foundation Trilogy by Asimov. Uh, Ah, The famous author, okay. Wow. That's right. Uh, but we are, we're also thinking about Terminus, the god, uh, the Roman god, uh, the god of boundaries. At the time, we were doing, uh, you know, a lot of data quality, trying to import information from places and put it into a knowledge graph okay. that would have high quality data. And so you need boundaries. And so that's Terminus is the god of boundaries. And and if I'm a, if I'm a bit nosy, who came up with it with with this name? The uh, the, the Feeney brothers or brothers or yourself? I believe it was the Feeney Brothers. Was it you, Luke? I, I can't remember where it came oh, it from. It was originally. you. It was you, Gavin. Stop trying to pass <laughs> up the credit. Really... Okay. We had a, an interim title between... So we, we, when we spun out of university, we were called Data Chemist. And Data Chemist still lives on. It's the uh, consultancy wing of the organization. So when we do consultancy, we do chemistry on your data to make it all fit together nice and neatly. Um, but we... Uh, then we, we we were transitioning across to being named after our principal product, um, and we were naming our principal product at the same time. So um, okay. we were we were Regulum DB for a while. Um, Regulum DB sounds like a, a laxative, though. Um, <laughs> Dangerous. <laughs> we actually okay. we own we own the 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 uh, the copyright to Regulum DB in case there are any budding uh, database developers out there that want to buy it from us. We will sell it for a reasonable price. Um, and we were a little bit worried about Terminus because 
um, there were some uh, French chaps who had a company called Terminus Media. Um, I see. And uh, we, we were worried that we wouldn't get a, a word right or copyright on the name for EU because it was somewhat similar. Um, but actually, they were very reasonable. And um, after a little bit of communication back and forth, they agreed that, it, you know, that these that nobody would actually get confused by a, a movie company and, and, a, and a database company and said that we could go ahead, formally said that we could go ahead and call it Terminus DB after both the Asimov and the, um, mm. and the, God, the Roman God. And Chris, as, as you know, um, uh, the hard things, that the, the joke is obviously that the, the, the hard things in computer science are naming things, and that's definitely the case when it comes to naming databases, cache coherence and off by one errors. Um, so those are the, the two hard things in computers. Okay. Changing tack a little bit, and given the fact that we have the CTO on this, on this, on this episode recording, well, we might, I might as well ask some technical questions. If I take a look at a GitHub repo, there are two things that come to mind, Gavin. A Git-like engine, and apparently which is written in Rust as the underlying technology. Given the, given the fact that This is almost, as in the, the Linux in-laws, are almost half a Rust podcast <laughs> because, <laughs> quite a few, because quite a few episodes have been spent on tackling Rust from different angles, community marketing and all the rest of it. And yes, we will have uh, Rebecca Rumble on upcoming episodes. Uh, that can be disclosed. So no, no worries. Uh, maybe you can shed some light on the technology itself, why you went for this technology, and especially what sets the storage engine Apart from other approaches, Redis comes to mind, Mongo comes to mind, and other and other kind of databases that claim to be pretty performant. For example, Redis does it basically all in memory. Uh, maybe you can shed some light on the on the on the, on your approach and the architecture, and also spill the beans on why you went down that route. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe it's easiest if I start why why we went down that route. So originally we were trying to figure out how to get extremely large graphs uh, to function well for queries. And we did some experiments uh, and it looked like for Seshat we were going to be able to work with a sort of conventional um, graph database and it was going to be fairly manageable because you were talking about tens of millions of edges uh, and, and not, not that many. But we started doing some loading of, um, well, with a, a subsidiary of Walters Kluwer, we did an analysis of the Polish economy, basically doing all of the, like storing all of the companies, their boards of directors, all of the shareholdings, all of the, uh, you know, subsidiaries and uh, all of the uh, people who are involved in bankruptcy proceedings, etc. So all of that information since, um, essentially since the fall of the uh, Warsaw Pact. So going back to the early 1990s. And that ended up being uh, over a billion edges. And that just wasn't manageable using wow. any of the conventional uh, uh, techniques so we searched around and we actually found there was this open source project called HTT, which um, it's, it's a RDF uh, sort of static database. It's a load once. Uh, so, sorry, Kevin, times. What's, what's an RDF? 
for these yeah, people so who don't know in, in the audience that do not know what that means. That's right. Okay, so RDF was a semantic web standard that was developed, and it's basically just a format for storing triples. The basic idea is that you can have a node, a named node, a named edge uh, arriving at some target node, or um, a data point. So you have sort of two different types of triples: ones that one that is node cross uh, property cross node, and one is node cross property cross data. Um, and that, that sort of framework is a very general framework for storing labeled graphs. And you can put a lot of things quite conveniently into a sort of RDF framework. It's in contradistinction, I guess, to property graphs, which have a slightly different approach to modeling. But, uh, I, I mean, they're, they're sort of uh, isomorphic in a sense. So there's not a huge difference between them. In any case, HTT. So it was. It came out of the semantic web originally, I suppose. The RDF structure. So we were trying to figure out how. So we decided to use this HTT to as an experiment. Uh, we got a really big, massive machine with a lot of memory, uh, and we just created a bunch of worker nodes to make lots of these little HTT files, and then merge them all together into a gigantic plane. That would then run in memory as a uh, read-only uh, database, and that worked quite well, actually. So we were able to go up to very huge, um, very huge databases with very good performance for recovering long chains, uh, especially. So if you're looking up a single, um, you know, a single node, then uh, you might be faster with some other type of database. But if you start looking down chains of nodes, this actually turns out to be a very good way uh, of, of structuring the data. Now, the, the thing that's interesting about HTT is they were using something called a succinct data structure to store the information. And succinct data structures are queryable data structures that are uh, approach the information uh, theoretic minimum size for representation while also being able to um, allow these uh, queries in reasonable amounts of time, like logarithmic time or something along those lines, mm. depending on what the precise operation is that you're... Like a bitmap, essentially, for example. Yeah, so bitmaps, exactly. Yeah, so you have these sort of bit arrays, bitmaps. Those can be used. Uh, you can do logarithmic searches on things like that. And then there's other techniques. It's sort of a family of techniques for representing... Uh, and this uh, this was really cool. Uh, so these succinct uh, data structures are very cool, but they're ha hard to write. So they they like to be written once. Uh, they don't like to be uh, updated, and they're a little bit tricky. There are dynamic structures and dynamic ways of dealing with this persistency and things like that, but uh, they tend to be right once. So it, naturally, we started developing the system where we would store deltas and then occasionally roll them up into a big flat plane when necessary. This, And if you do this in a clever way, you can sort of cleverly create a sort of log-like uh, shape to the way that you have these planes as you update them. And that, that, uh, that idea sort of naturally created a database which was A, immutable, and B, um, had com a commit structure somewhat like Git. So the <laughs> it was sort of developed quite naturally out of this need to go up to very large graphs. 
So that gives you version control pretty much out of the box, no? Yeah, so that's Come the to think of thing. It. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some orchestration on the top. This is actually a fair bit of extra work. We thought it would be less extra work than it was. But, mm. yeah, no, so we could see, oh, this is very much like Git. All we'd need is, like, branches, and then suddenly we'd have something a lot like Git just based on this structure. And why Rust as the primary implementation language? Why not C or C++? Right. Try so and test it. Yeah, no, we started with C++, so we, we were using C++ to do, uh, using HTT's libraries and then modifying HTT's libraries um, to improve some of the problems that they had. And uh, we really needed multi-threading in order to make it so that it was performant to do large uh, assemblages, like when we're really creating a large graph. And that ended up uh, in a lot of crashes. So there were a lot of like race conditions and there was a lot of non-reentrant uh, functions that were supposed to be re-entrant and they were incredibly difficult to track down. Okay. Uh, and so one of our engineers, uh, Matthias van Arde, he's um, uh, he was sort of learning Rust in his spare time and he thought, you know what, I'm just going to rewrite this library in Rust in my, in my spare time. Not in, nice. my, okay. in my spare time. And then he came in and he was like, here, I have a working prototype. Uh, what do you think? And I was like, wow, that's, that's okay. pretty amazing. And no, we had, like we almost never suffer from those sorts of, uh, those sorts of uh, crashes or non-reentry yeah. behavior. Be, before, we, before we discuss Rust a little bit more, didn't you take a look at something called LibBoost or something to eliminate the complexity of multi-threaded C++ code? Because normally Boost and, and that remaining ecosystem as in supporting frameworks is existing and has kind of tackled the hard work already or didn't or didn't or wasn't lip boost and friends a fit for the project. Just curious. It would have meant sort of going through systematically everything in the HTT library and trying to ah, okay. uh, tighten it up. So it turned out that a rewrite in Rust was probably on the similar scale of complexity okay. um, to to doing that. So I think it was it was probably I I feel like it was the wiser decision overall. Uh, it it saved us a lot of time in adding uh, yeah various kinds of multi-threading and avoiding a lot of different kinds of bound checking errors. But yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. Boost does improve things significantly over. Old I mean, style, yeah, fast and loose. The, the beauty with Rust is, of course, in full disclosure, marketing uh, part, uh, marketing portion starting right now for us as in blatant marketing for us. Rust comes with a lot of components already in, in the sand library that you have to tack on your 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 C plus plus code before you get it to work on the same level as Rust basically supports it with the sand library already. For example, multi-threading, channels, and all the rest of it, where you have to resort to external libraries in C++. Rust basically has it as part of its standard library, which makes it easier, I reckon, to implement because it's part of the core library set or functionality, rather, of the, of the language already. Yeah, I mean, the, the compiler's ability to, to help you is, is really not to be uh, underappreciated as well. I mean, it, so you can take something like... Um, the the uh, GMP library, uh, which is a multi-precision um, large number library, essentially that's widely used. And if you look at the Rust libraries that use it, 
they basically just have a shim on top. They use a bunch of unsafe calls, etc. But they make it so that you can't shoot yourself in the foot very easily. And that that kind of the, that shim above it is not the same as the way that Boost would be able to help you. So Boost can help you a little bit, but it really doesn't provide the, this ability to ha- get the compiler to help you not shoot yourself in the foot in the same way. So whenever I talk to people that have mastered the learning curve, they tell to, they tend to tell me that Rust is probably not the easiest language to learn. What was the experience of you and your team when you decided to tackle that learning curve of well, learning Rust? It's, it's I, I wouldn't like it is kind of significant. Uh, the borrow checker is is a weird way of thinking about things. Um, it does take us longer to write code, I think. Uh, we spend less time. I, I think even C++ is, I don't know, there's some aspects of Rust that are so convenient that uh, they, they may, it may be almost neck and neck with C++, but it's kind of similar. It's not like a high-level language like Python where you can just, uh, you know, out really quickly. You do spend some time, even once you understand what's going on, fighting, fighting the compiler, trying to get uh, the type checker to pass. Um, but it, it's worth it, you know? And the original, eventually, there is a point at which you're like, ah, okay, and the basic ideas of the borrow checker kind of sink in. I would say it took me sort of a month before it kind of made sense enough that I wasn't constantly <laughs> fighting, uh, you know, an uphill battle. But I think other people pick it up quicker. Uh, full disclaimer, um Gavin just talked about advanced, or wouldn't, I wouldn't say advanced, but rather basic to the media concepts in Rust. There is a previous episode of something about Linux in-laws where we tackle these problems or these concepts. Details will be in the show notes. And of course, there's also the um, language project uh, homepage where these concepts are, are explained in depth. So we won't tackle them now. But so if I take, if I, if I understand this correctly, Gavin, the old Rust adage still applies. If you can convince the compiler to generate code, you're almost there. As in the amount of time that you have to spend on, on, on debugging your code is really cut down because much of the effort that is normally spent after you get a build on debugging that build is actually done prior to generating the um, executable because the compiler basically takes the code apart and puts it back together back together again. Yeah, and I mean, like obviously, um, you can use types in more or less sophisticated ways, but the but the kinds of bugs that it kills uh, with the type checker that I think are really the most important ones are are those sorts of like race conditions, uh, seg faults, things that end up really being difficult to track down. So your bugs tend to be more like logical errors and more like the kinds of things that you'd mess up in something like Python, you know, where you have a simpler language, you just messed up the idea uh, and you don't have this mysterious sudden crashing that is like, if crashes happen in a very irregular or unrepeatable way or in unrepeatable way, it's really hard to, to get rid of them. So much nicer to never have those sorts of sudden uh, <laughs> sudden bugs that you have no idea where they came from and can't repeat them on a second go. Oh, interesting. Changing tag just a little bit. The, you, the Wikipedia page about Terminus CB tells me that you changed licensing halfway in between from a GNU, comp, uh, from a GNU license to Apache. 
which is a very interesting move. Maybe you or Luke can shed more light on the background and especially why you did this. Because normally projects tend to do it the other way, moving away from a more permissive license to a more communist slash restrict license like the GNUs of the world. Or yeah, GPS well, for that matter. We would have done that if we'd, um, if we'd been overwhelmed with popularity on our initial release, then we might have been <laughs> becoming more restrictive rather than more uh, permissive. But um, we had a bunch of users coming into the community and chatting to us who, um, you know, wanted to build a application with the software, but felt, even if it was unjustified, had a general feeling that they were going to be caught up by the licensing and that they okay. had liberty to build with the licensing. And so we decided to go open source um We'd open source the software with a with a GPL uh, three, um, and um, we you know we we didn't feel that there was any real issue for those people in just building with the software that there wasn't going to be any copyleft provisions that were going to get in their way, but they had the feeling that there was. They had the feeling that um, their organizations weren't going to be in a position or a willing position to use. Uh, GNU style licenses, uh, as you probably know, like Google, um, it restricts the use of certain GPL licenses entirely. So uh, none of the AGPL licenses are allowed in any Google software at all, um, and not allowed to be used within the Google organization. Also, unfortunately, you know, for better or for worse, there's a chilling effect that takes place then, um, and when we wanted the uh, software to spread as broadly as possible, um, we thought that the Apache was the better uh, balance there. So it was with a little bit of regret and the slightly heavy heart that we made that decision, but I think it's the right one for databases um, because it does allow people to build um, you know, as permissively as, as they need to. Sorry, yes. Um, AGPL, of course, referring to the Afaro GPL, which is probably one of the more stricter GNU public license versions out there. Essentially, basically, it's viral communism at heart. Essentially, if you talk to an, to an AGPL license component, even through an API, you have to essentially uh, disclose as and reveal as and publish the source code. Um, details maybe in the show notes, but of course, there's also a previous episode of something called Linux in Oz, where we actually discuss open source licenses. But back to the issue at hand. So essentially, if I understand this correctly, you change that licensing model to increase adoption, which is a rather interesting move, if I may, if I may say so. Yeah, that's exactly it. We, we, we increased it in order to increase adoption and increase the ability for people to use it to build within companies, within enterprises. Um, without the fear that they might be in some way restricted by some legal provision within the license at some later stage. And this is the feedback that you're getting from the community too, after this change? Before and after the change, yeah. Interesting, um, okay. Yeah, so definitely we got that feedback a bunch of times um, within the financial services sector. And, I mean, the problem is one of the things that we'd observed when we were out um, – you know, talking to companies, talking to people about their problems, is that people were using GPL licenses in ways, or GPL software in ways they probably shouldn't anyway. 
they were embedding it. They weren't telling the companies. They were doing all sorts of shady stuff. Um, and uh, we kind of felt, well, you know, if, if people are doing that sort of stuff anyway, we should probably just say that the Apache 2.0 is good enough and it's definitely been somewhere where we've been comfortable to land. Interesting. Um, so it's 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 yeah, it's interesting. To see, it's interesting to see what happens if you change that license. Um, changing tack once once again. If I take a look at your website called turbosdb.com, of course, links will be in the show notes. I see uh, quite a few offerings apparently built on top of turbosdb. I see the I see the core technology turbosdb, but I also see Terminus X, schema as a service, version XL, and some other stuff. Maybe. <laughs> And this is, uh, and without basically going too much into marketing, maybe you can shed some light on the on the efforts that you try to monetize on top of your open source core technology. Yeah, so uh, only too happy to discuss that. Yeah, we um, have Terminus X, which is a database as a service, and um, we're actually going to transition that across into a slightly different model. Uh, into being more like a uh, what we're calling a beta builder, so um, a service where people can come along and they can test out building a beta using our cloud platform. Um, it, it gets anybody over the hump of having to get their own software, um, you know, running, um, doing their own deployments, building their own uh, CI uh, pipelines, so they can come, they can use our API. They can get started with their project. They can then see if it's successful, see if the software works for them, uh, see the graph capabilities, use the query language, um, you know, build uh, knowledge graphs and have them running as production applications. Uh, but then the idea is that people will transition across to their own deployments because as things become more successful, people will want to govern better uh, performance and parameters around performance. Um, and we'll help with uh, the deployment to any cloud that they may have um, and rolling out of any enterprise features. Um, so uh, Terminus X will become more like a beta builder, um, a cloud environment for people to go get started. Not like, a, you know, it's like a sandbox on steroids. Uh, so it's like, a, you know, people often offer sandboxes, but this is one where you can actually build a production application. Um, uh, very easily in the cloud and then transition across to having that in your environment uh, with our support and our enterprise packet. Really, that's where we, um, we, we, we see ourselves making uh, more commercial deals in the future is on that transition from something that you're rolling out as a beta into something that you want to deploy in one of the hyperscalers in Azure or in um, uh, AWS or or. or and we're uh, obviously ready to do that at a, at short notice, um, and then we offer support around that, all those sorts of things as well. We have a we have some supplementary products that we've built on the back of the software, and um, for various different reasons. One of those is version Excel, which you mentioned, which is Excel versioning tool, which effectively treats Excel like a front end or like a like a, an interface for the for the database. And then another one is a critical asset management tool for understanding climate resilience. And we built that with the United Nations. 
so that um, developing world communities can better understand cascading failures uh, of critical assets in climate-stressed environments. And given that we're a graph database, you can do those sorts of queries very simply to see how, how assets might be linked together across multiple. And now he's gone. Yeah. Okay. M maybe you could maybe you could chip in because this is not working yeah, so, with, the, with the audio. Yeah. So um, just on that, uh, people building applications on Terminus X. So one of the features that we have is we have a very Git-like structure, and it's a distributed database in the in the same sense that Git is a distributed database. So you can sort of manually move around changes from place to place. So if you've built something on Terminus X, it's actually quite simple to just clone it and pull it into some other Terminus DB installation, uh, and you can just do it over the wire. So uh, And it actually it can do incremental uh, updates and incremental backups can also hmm. be done this way. In Interesting. So taking a look at the offerings on your web page, Terminus DB as such as an open source code base can be found on GitHub. Terminus X is your managed service offering. Of course, you're probably charging money for this. But what about um, Schema as a Service version XL? These would be open core products as in relying on Terminus DB, but essentially turning the company into an open core company as an open core approach where That's the... Right, yeah. Where the exactly where, where the core technology similar to Redis, Mongo, Couchbase, and whatever is on GitHub, but the but the other stuff, especially the managed services, are paid for commercial products. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, I think the big focus for uh, the schema as a service is to offer additional functionality to MongoDB users. Um, MongoDB users that want to do path queries, that want to have any of those Git-like version control features um, to make that very, very simple for them to do uh, and to make then, obviously, the ability to um, to define a strong schema for your MongoDB data. One of the nice things about Terminus in general is that it's um, both a graph database and a, and a document database, so what we call a, a, a document graph. I can interact then very nicely with MongoDB and its JSON document structures in order to um, to, to, to do that. So really, uh, some of those deficiencies that exist within the Mongo ecosystem, we're trying to pick up on um, and, and and help users that are that are there to to do some of that stuff. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think. Um, The version XL is exactly uh, the same insofar as it's a layer that's built on top of the open source database or open core model. Interesting perspective. Uh, and now for the really bitchy questions in terms of <laughs> we're an explicit podcast. <laughs> now changing tack a little bit, moving on to community marketing. Um, if I take a look at a website called db-engines.com, I see Neo4j at Is it uh, position number eighteen, uh, nineteen, maybe? Tiger at uh, 122, Redis at seven, I think, and Arango at 75. Now, these would be all multi-model databases or native graph databases, which you may or may not consider as a competition. But if I check out Terminus, it scores at th position 309. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a fair point. 
Uh, I think that Arango DB we definitely see as as competition. I mean, they also do that uh, crossover between document and graph. So they're and they're a great database. Um, and uh, they um, they also changed their name. They used to be. So I think that uh, databases that have changed their name that are about document and graph are are, are competition, but. I uh, we'd be very negative about DB engines and the way that their algorithm works for the ranking. Um, it, it, a lot of it is about um, how many times the database has been mentioned in job advertisements um, and other things like that. So Oracle remains on top always, um, and MySQL comes second. So I don't think it really reflects reflects that well on uh, younger databases and their um, ability to to impact on the market. Okay, apart from DDoSing, what do you intend to do about this DB engine ranking or not? Given the fact that, as you said, DB, DB, DB engines takes, takes multiple vectors, which at times may not be that accurate. But as a matter of fact, to some extent, they reflect the community echo of your of your of your code base of your adoption of of the adoption in the community and any any thoughts on this one what do you do with regards to community marketing and of course the links within the show notes as applicable yeah so uh the things that it takes into account are um we're, we're not really sure exactly how they're balanced across their algorithm but obviously we do try and become more relevant in social networks and professional networks uh, and we spend a lot of time and effort on um trying to build a community that is inclusive and um um and, and helps users to better understand the technology we run a uh, a discord server um, where we try and respond to users' queries uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and we have a Twitch channel where we do a bunch of live coding for anybody that's interested in coming along and seeing some Rust or Prologue coding. Um, we, we do that. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, you know, you'll know, Chris, it's a, it's a slow process building a community, um, especially if you're trying to build it uh, in such a way as it's durable. It's a community of, of, of people that are genuinely interested in the technology and genuinely interested in building. Um, and, and we have a kind of, you know, an active user base within our community who are uh, building really remarkable things in different areas. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, we we will climb up the DB Engine's ranking because we'll get better there, uh, but we'll just take quite a while for us to catch up with some of those more established databases even if of course our uh, performance our technology our people and everything about us is better than all of the other databases that you mentioned <laughs> absolutely you see otherwise uh luke i wouldn't be talking to you in the first place no, i'm joking <laughs> no jokes aside people where do you move on to way safer grounds now where do you see this going not just in terms of the open source code base but also in terms of maybe the commercial offering or maybe the community in general what's next for Terminus DB. Well, we're great believers in in the ideas around data mesh um, that have been so thoughtfully expanded by people in ThoughtWorks and elsewhere over the last couple of years. Um, and Jamak, um, who's kind of the founder of the of the modern sociotechnic uh, data mesh distributed architecture. Um, 
So what we'd like to do and where we'd like to see it grow over the next few years is to build out a series of features that allow us to be a drop-in distributed data mesh for um, data-oriented organizations that want to uh, push um, data management out to domains so that um, this you know, incredible um, monolith of the modern data stack at the center of a lot of organizations can be uh, broken up uh, to give more flexibility, give more um, durability, and give uh, you know give better results for for users, so that people sitting in in marketing or sales aren't um, subject to the whims of data engineers at the core, but can actually uh, build and create data products that can be surfaced to the rest of the organization. Uh, you know. By themselves and can be modeled there. So we're very much on that um, left-hand turn of uh, moving back towards a more heavily modeled world of, of, of data. And um, what we'll do kind of probably in the near term is launch a, uh, what we'll call a probably a, a, a knowledge management system. So like a, a CMS, but for um, knowledge uh, rather than just content. Um, so that's kind of where we're, a lot of our technical effort is going in now is to build out the features around that. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll slowly, uh, over the next kind of year, put together all of the features so that we can be a drop-in um, data mesh type environment for the enterprise. Oh, I'm sure. No, I'm, I'm sure yeah. now. I, I didn't discuss this with Gavin in advance. Nice one, people. Nice. <laughs> Now, jokes aside, if I mean that, look, that dangerously moves you some to some close to some, to something called machine learning, deep learning. If I take a look at ArangoDB and the strides they are making, especially in the machine learning curve, with regards to, for example, something called ArangoPipe, where they explicitly position them themselves as the graph database of choice for machine and deep learning with the architecture on top of the existing ArangoDB core. Where do you, and as I said, knowledge, I see this moving towards machine learning very quickly. Where do you see this going? I mean, do you actually want to enter that space or when you keep it on a kind of fairly high semantic level without going down that artificial intelligence route? Oh, no, we definitely want to go down that artificial intelligence route, definitely. Um, because we think we're, you know, a lot better choice than uh, than even ArangoDB, who are very, very good. Um, we think the revision control features of Terminus DB are, make a lot of sense. We think the our approach to um, data modeling is 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 the better one. Um, and we, we also fundamentally think that our query language is better. Um, we think that... Um, that the world will move towards data log. If you look at it, I don't know if you've ever come across them, Chris. Now, there's a company called Relational AI. Um, the former CEO of Snowflake, Bob Muglia, he, Brings has, about, yes. yeah, he joined their board recently. And they are like, hey, we're going to take graph databases and we're going to make them work with SQL. And then when you look under the hood, it's like, yeah, okay, you can do a few things with SQL, but if you want to do anything exciting or interesting or next generation with this um, new way of looking at data, you have to go into using their um, variant of data log. 
Um, and so we think the data, the databases and data stores that have those sorts of abilities built close to the core are going to be the ones that um, that win out in the end. And, and Terminus has already been deployed in a whole bunch of um, machine learning, AI uh, infrastructure projects. We're members of the AI Infrastructure Alliance, which is uh, building a new canonical uh, stack for AI. So we, we really do see ourselves... Um, and we see version control data as being fundamental to tomorrow's machine learning and, and, and AI. Interesting. Okay. Any thoughts on quant on, on something called quantum artificial intelligence? I mean, this is the this is the stride that D-Wave at Friends are making into a much more commercial adoption of their technology. So when can we expect the next version of Terminus actually talking to the likes of D-Wave, IBM, and some other quantum companies out there? Anytime soon? Good question. Yeah, no, I'll, we'll, we'll have a we'll have a version in in a couple of weeks. Just to <laughs> people, you heard it here okay. first. <laughs> no jokes aside. I mean, it's a niche, but it's a very fast grow. It's a very quickly growing niche. We're, we're, yeah, I'm, no, running, actually, I'm running uh, this uh, this software for this um, podcast on my quantum computer right now. <laughs> Ec- excellent. So what could possibly possibly go wrong, Luke? In that case, <laughs> okay. No jokes aside. In parallel. <laughs> yeah. Anything that we should touch upon before we close this off, as and move move on to the poxies. But uh, yeah, those, he really gave a good overview of where we're going and ha- the way we see the world. I think at the moment, hmm. Gavin, okay. do you have do you have something to add maybe on the machine learning side and kind of you know why well, you think terminus? Yeah, so why is terminus? I mean, now's the time, good? exactly. Yes, yeah, exactly. So I guess so. The the we talked a little bit about succinct data structures and a little bit about the data mesh. So essentially, in order to leverage uh, this sort of knowledge repositories that we have. You want to build knowledge graphs, but you can't build a knowledge graph of everything all at once because then it becomes totally unmanageable and you don't know the ontology that you need to use for all of these different segments. So you need sort of domain control. And really what you want to do is create a network of knowledge graphs that creates an uber knowledge graph out of combining individual knowledge graphs. In order to do that, you need some kind of mesh uh, approach. So you need to be able to create these individual data products and you need to mix and match them. And you need some sort of way to uh, to perform queries over a, a union of these in some sort of, uh, in, a, in a fairly effective manner. And Terminus's use of succinct data structures is really the right, uh, it, it really forms a good sort of backbone for doing this. And we were looking at some people in industry that were, you know, spinning up hundreds of uh, SQL light databases, merging them together into a giant sort of Uber database and doing the queries over that. And it turned out that that was much faster than, say, like Amazon's Redshift. So this is actually a very effective way to approach the problem if you can do these sorts of, uh, you know, piecemeal merges of the problem domains that you need to create the network that's of interest for an analysis across uh, maybe many different kinds of data products. And I, I do think that, you know, the combination of data mesh and the combination of sort of succinct data structure scaling uh, is really where we want, we see ourselves trying to hit in a year. We're not really there yet, but we intend to be there in, in, in about a year. 
Okay, Luke, anything to add? No, I think that captures it pretty well that, you know, there, there, there's a combination of factors that really work well with Terminus DB um, on data mesh and, and machine learning and really about trying to, uh, now it's trying to both finish off some of the features that will enable that, like querying across data products effectively, picking and choosing from data products effectively if you're a downstream user like a, like a data scientist that wants to run some experiment, uh, and then just interfacing with existing um, uh, enterprise architecture. As we all know, once you try to do deployments into enterprise, you run into all sorts of historic beasts um, and have to engage in a whole bunch of data archaeology, and there's a lot of potential for integration work, and we're trying to short-circuit as many of those problems as possible. Um, so that when people do make the decision to um, to implement a data mesh, which of course is not just a technological decision, it's often um, more an organization or a you know a social decision than anything else, because you're you know you're required or you need to do redeployment of teams out to the domains to make sure that the expertise is where it needs to be. Um, rather than building these very uh, dense cores within organizations. So once you're making those decisions, that the tooling is available to make that easier. Um, and again, that means that you've got to think about how enterprises actually use software um, and how uh, we could make that a little bit easier. That has been more than an interesting hour of technical and non-technical discussion. One of the things that we do to close to close the, the, the show off is actually to discuss boxes. Boxes stands for the pick of the week. Essentially something that has crossed your path over the last, over the last one or two weeks, which you would think worth, is worth mentioning. It can be a book. It can be a piece of software. It can be a movie. It can be. Even maybe a uh, a TV series, as in whatever is whatever is shown on, on Netflix these days, or it can be, of course, if you choose to do so, a piece of Irish politics. So, what's your what's your pick of the week, Gavin? Your pox. Well, I think it's going to have to be uh, Carbon. So Google's Carbon. Uh, they just launched. Uh, I, I don't know if it was last week or or the week before, but it's very new. The 20th of July or something like that. Mm. Um, and it's their answer to C++. And it's interesting. It's sort of, it looks like it's angling to be a rust killer. So that's Really? Oh, wow, okay. I, I, that's how I kind of see it. So, you know, even the syntax has some kind of feel to it. Uh, so it looks to me like Google feels that this thing is going to happen. C++ is going to die. And they'd rather replace it with their own than uh, get stuck with, with rust but that's sort of my naive read of it maybe maybe other people looking into it have a better read indeed of course links maybe in the show notes uh, what's what have happened to golang in that case yeah screw golang right <laughs> fair enough google invention too i might add okay check this out people as i said links will in the show notes it's on github as in they have released this yeah it's okay right. perfect luke what's your what's your pox it was a great choice by Gavin. I thought he was going to say something about carbon, as in uh, people fighting about carbon budgets, because that's all that's going on in our <laughs> okay. at the moment. Fair yeah, enough. Obviously, it's something else. Now, what I'm going to mention is 
Uh, I was on holidays last week in uh, the south of France, and I read a book you. that I really enjoyed by a Peruvian author. Uh, or no, he's not Peruvian, he's Chilean, um, which is called When We Cease to Understand the World, which is a, a non-fiction novel, if such a thing makes sense, which is about, about mathematics and physics and about um, the, 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 the people losing losing themselves when they get close to the core of mathematical ideas. And it threads a beautiful uh, thread of modern physicists and mathematicians uh, from the 19th century through to, um, you know, quantum mechanics and about uh, their psychological states and how they approach the world. Um, and it, it's a fantastic, a short read uh, and very, very, very enjoyable for anybody that's um, that, that's interested in physics and interested in human psychology and the crossover of those things, I, I'd recommend it. The other thing that I'm a regular reader of, which I can only recommend to your audience, is, um, is Ben Stansel's Substack. So that's Ben, B-E-N-N dot Substack. Um, he's a great writer about data in general and had a couple of great um, um, uh, recent blog posts, one called the Data Config about um, a humble YAML file with ambitions for more and another one about data-driven companies, whether they actually win or not, which isn't, kicked off a bunch of conversations within uh, within term. Okay, isn't humble YAML a contradiction in itself? <laughs> I'm just asking okay. story. <laughs> okay, and and a plain English um, version, as in translation of the of the book you mentioned first, is available too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, Perfect. It's all in English. Absolutely, <laughs> excellent. We, we cease to understand the world. It's available. Okay, on, uh, fair on enough. Amazon. I read it in English, that, of course. I'm not. That, I'm not, that sounds. That sounds good yeah. enough. Fair enough. That sounds very interesting. Um, my parks and just to keep this short because we are all we are almost um, approaching the two-hour mark. No, I'm joking. We're just running over an hour. Uh, mine is a movie called Chirac. It's from 2015, done by a, a director called Spike Lee, if I'm not completely mistaken. And it's a modern-day adaption of the ancient Greek play called Lysistrata. Essentially, it's about uh, two conflicting Parties, let's put it this way, where the women simply get fed up with the violence, also in ancient Greek, as in Greece, sorry, and they tell their man, sorry, if you, you have two choices, either you stop this war or this conflict, or you basically will have to live without physical encounters, as in sex. <laughs> Now, this one is actually set in modern-day Chicago, and it's very funny to watch because what actually Spike Lee did, he took portions of the ancient Greek play and put it into the mouths of, mouths of, of the likes of, of Wesley Snipes and Samuel L. Jackson. So if you're game for that sort of thing, that's a movie not to be missed. It's probably available on Netflix and other streaming services. As I said, it's, it's from 2015. Links, of course, will in the show notes. Luke. Gavin, or Gavin and Luke, <laughs> no particular order. Thank you very much. That has been more than interesting and hoping to have you on the podcast in a couple of years' time when you have moved to position number one on something called DB Engines, if it still exists and is relevant. Thank you. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.
This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license, type attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for their song Salad Market, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. <laughs> to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. Today's show was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, you click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hosting for HBR has been kindly provided by anhonesthost.com, the Internet Archive, and rsync.net. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License.